worship this night. Glad to have all of you here. Hopefully you're well fed from the soup supper if you were able to attend. And uh, tonight is our second to last time together on Wednesday nights before we walk into uh, that focused week, that holy week. Um, kind of a late Easter this year, but uh, glad to have you here tonight. Uh, we'll be prayer will be led from our wonderful music folks over here. As far as the psalm, when we get to that part, there's a part one and part two. Here's the deal tonight. Pick whichever one you like. <laughs> sing, sing back and forth to your spouse, whatever you want to do. Just pick one and, and you'll be follow along. We'll begin our worship this time. Jesus Christ, you are the light of the world. Thank you. 
May our prayers come before you, O God, as incense. And may your presence surround and fill us, so that in union with all creation, we might sing your praise and your love in our lives. Amen. Tonight, we explore the extremes of lost hopes. And I'm going to give you some homework, rather, rather than reading all of Genesis chapter 38. I can summarize it a bit, but hopefully it'll lead you to go home and to look at that chapter on your own. It's the story that kind of intercepts or interrupts the flow of the story of Joseph, which starts in chapter 37 and goes all the way through chapter 50. We have this kind of detour, it seems, in chapter 38 of Judah kind of taking off on his own from the family, Um, one of those 12 sons, Uh, and he steers off into uh, Cana, and he says, you know, I've got it all figured out, and I don't need my family, and I don't need this this God and this covenant and all of this kind of stuff, and strikes out on his own. Maybe you're that person. Maybe you know that person. And as he does that, he has, uh, uh, takes a wife and has a couple of, of, or three sons, actually. The oldest of which, uh, he finds a wife for named uh, Tamar, and she marries Ur, his oldest son. And Ur is, does evil in the sight of God and dies without giving Tamar any children. And so Tamar, as the custom is, is um, then married off to the next brother, but he refuses to give her children. It's a fairly detailed and graphic story. I won't say exactly how, but he kind of has his own plan of how he refuses to give her children. And then he dies in his evil doing. And so there is one last son, but he's not really of marrying age. And frankly, at this point, Judah has decided that Tamar is kind of a bad omen. And so he casts her off. So here's a woman who has buried now two husbands and has really no hope of family or future or legacy of any kind, especially being fairly powerless in that day. She is under the rule and control of of Judah, who seems to have no sense of direction, no kind of moral compass at all in his life. And she is sent to be a, a widow in her father's house, which means she has to wear particular clothes that she probably doesn't want to, and show herself as a widow until the time when the youngest son will be old enough to marry her. That's what Judah says to her, but he never intends to give his last son, or give her to his last son. She sees Judah and his son, now grown up, definitely ready to marry, and realizes that she's never, not going to have any kind of a future. She's experienced great loss and great hardship. She has been under the rule of Judah and his power, and generally the power of men, who in this case kind of always blame the woman for the things that have gone wrong. She's endured all this rejection, and she hatches finally a plan to disguise herself as a temple prostitute so that when Judah comes into that place, again, lacking direction and morals, he strikes a bargain with this uh, prostitute, but he doesn't have anything to pay her, doesn't recognize that it's his daughter-in-law, And so he makes a promise and gives her a couple of items that would show who he is as kind of a trust before he promises to pay her with a goat, okay? 
It's supposed to be a little bit funny, kind of dark humor in this particular chapter. Well, when they go back to pay her, she's not there. And nobody knows about this temple prostitute. There isn't one. <clears throat> Meanwhile, Tamar is found to be pregnant with twins. And Judah says this very final and kind of terrible thing towards Tamar to add to her hardship. It says here in verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the whore. Moreover, she is pregnant as a result of whoredom. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, it was the owner of these who made me pregnant. And she said, take note, please, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah acknowledged them and said, she is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not lie with her again. So through all this hardship, and certainly the story has sort of a happy ending, but we see tragedy throughout this life of Tamar until she in desperation uh, hatches this plan and finally, finally gets heirs and sons to take care of her in her old age. But until that time, she is much like the singer of our song today from Les Miserables, Fontaine, who is cast out, who is tricked, who is under the power of others, and who is judged as unclean because of what someone else did to her. And this is her song of lament.
For me, there are two stinging and kind of haunting phrases in that song. When she says, I dreamed that God would be forgiving, obviously feeling that God is not. And that phrase that comes um, towards the end, um, that life has killed the dream I dreamed. Our symbol for tonight, kind of a heavy night, I know, is this dark cloth. And so as we've been putting up symbols in the shadow of the cross, the hope chest, the measuring, uh, the life stages, uh, this, this kind of measurement stick that goes there, the, the heart pillow that was given to one of our members who died of a heart attack and was brought back to life. But tonight we wonder about those times when the hopes are not realized, when the child does not live to measure, when the heart is not revived. What do we do in the very dark places that can happen in our lives and in the life of the world, whether it's personal tragedy, the loss of dear and loved ones, whether it's um, natural disaster, whether it's being under the thumb of a tyrant, whatever that hardship and hopelessness might be. As I was thinking about that uh, for today and tonight, I thought of a movie that I love, but I've never actually seen all of it. I've seen scenes here and there and kind of pieced it together. I need to watch the whole thing. But it's a movie called About a Boy. And it's really about two boys. One of the boys is a man-child, I would call him. He's a young man who's grown up and has success and has a nice car and a nice flat. It takes place in England. He has everything put together nicely and neatly programmed. He has relationships that have pretty much no depth. He doesn't want that. He doesn't ever want children. But into his life steps a real boy, a young boy, who happens upon him and and, um, kind of squeezes his way into this very perfect world that this man-child has for himself. And in one of the scenes, this this boy is sitting on the, with the man-child, I guess you'd say, on the couch, and they're watching TV as they're kind of want to do, and like two guys, they're just they're not speaking, they're just watching. And suddenly the little boy says to this young man, um, he kind of confesses some of his anxieties and what's going on in his life, very frankly, as children are, as they do. And he talks about how he has this anxiety about going home because his mom is in a deep depression and he's already found her once, um, almost at the point of death, having taken a bottle of, of pills. And he's scared at what he will find every day when he comes home and opens that door. And he confesses that to this young man and all he can say is, a word I won't say, but it's an expletive. He just kind of lets it fly. And about 30 seconds later, the young boy decides to leave, and he's going to go home. And you get this sort of inner dialogue as the, as the young man closes the door and does this and thinks, why did I say that? Of all the things I could have said to this kid, why did I say that? And as you see the young boy walking away, you get his inner dialogue, and he says, I don't know why, but when he said that, I just felt better, like somebody understood. I think sometimes we're afraid that it isn't the right thing to do to just simply call a thing 
what it is. To just utter that expletive or that, to understand and just sit in the pain with those who are experiencing loss or when we are ourselves. I think that's one piece of how we deal with those extreme circumstances. I can tell you that, um, and I'm no one to talk about these extreme losses or circumstances. I have never had anyone very close to me in my family die. I've never lost a child or had a natural disaster destroy my home or, or anything like that. I've never been under the thumb of a ruler who, was, who was, had power over my life. Um, probably a lot of us haven't had a few of those, but some of us have had some of them, I'm sure. But when I, I was thinking about what Pastor Paula said last week and talking about illness and, and living in the shadow of that and how she says as she grows older, she prays bolder. And I think about the prayer that I pray oftentimes for my son, the most consistent prayer that I have. And I pray to God very bluntly and very directly, God, damn this illness back where it came from. Send it back to hell where it belongs. That's often my prayer for my son, and I think that helps me to call something what it is. But there's, that's not where we stop in our understanding of or dealing with these times of great loss, great hardship, lost hopes. In his book, Night, one of the most famous, probably most people here have even read it at some point. My son was reading it in school. Uh, Elie Wiesel says, uh, comes to a particular point and there he's in a concentration camp, I think it's in Buchenwald, and there's some signs that they might be liberated. They kind of hear the, the sounds of, of the explosions far off and they think, well, maybe the time is coming. In order to quell their hopes, however, the soldiers and, uh, in that uh, concentration camp decide to do something to squash their hopes even further. And so they put to death a child in that camp by hanging. And they make everybody stand there and watch this terrible, terrible act. And as that's happening, one of the people cries out, Where is God? And someone points at the boy and says, God is there. I think in those deep moments of suffering, that's another thing for us to understand is there is no, no place where God is closer than in the deepest and darkest places of lost hopes, both for us and for those we might know and love who experience these losses. And it's important for us to name that God is not, we are not forsaken in those places, but that God is most present in such places. We know that through the cross and living in its shadow. And finally, and this is a fine line, because sometimes we as people who want to make things better, we as Christians who want to put on, you know, that sort of smiley sticker on a situation can jump to that too quickly, and maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've been guilty of that. I think I've had both happen. Both that happened to me and done that. But ultimately, we do carry a hope in the midst of tragedy. I was reminded as I was preparing for Pastor Bill's class this last Sunday, something a professor of mine, a favorite professor of mine said, 
that I wrote down and I starred and I highlighted and I made another note that, to put it in a paper eventually and, and um, just kind of continued to come back to this statement. We know it's true, even if the evidence so often points against it. He said, the one thing we know is finite is death. Now, in our language, we don't always say that, right? Death and taxes, death is forever, death is final, but it isn't. It isn't. If I had a disagreement in the song tonight, it would be life has killed the dream I dream. No, death, sin, the devil, and all of his empty promises has killed your dreams. God in the cross has put death to death forever. We will live on even though we die. Hope will live on even though hope might seem lost. In all of the deepest, darkest, and lost places that we find ourselves or others find themselves, we know that that is not the last word. And ultimately, that is what we carry into those places of darkness and how we face them, call them what they are, but also see that there is something more to come. May you be blessed by that hope in the places of darkness and hopelessness for you and for those whom you love and know. Amen.
merciful God, source and ground of all goodness and life, give to your people the peace that passes all understanding, and the will to live your gospel of mercy and justice. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. God, remember us in your love and teach us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial, and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and glory are yours, and our honor forever. Amen. Thank you.